Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, EpiPens and drug pricing. And Richard, this has been a big debate since you and I last talked uh, about EpiPens, which are these devices, these injectable devices that you can use to administer a dose of epinephrine when people have anaphylactic shock, if they have severe allergies. Uh, root of the controversy here is how much the prices for EpiPens have gone up in recent years. It, it's increased nearly $400 over the last three years. And if you go back to 2007, a two-pack of EpiPens, which is the way they're normally sold, it cost a little under $100 then. Today it costs a little over 600 and, and Richard, the criticism here is that it's the exact same medicine. Nothing's come along to revolutionize the effectiveness of EpiPens in that time, and the critics will say this is pure and simple price gouging. Is that the right way to think about it? Well, in some sense, it surely is, and in another sense, it's surely not. Uh, let's just start off with the basic fundamentals. If you're in a competitive market, what will happen is competition will tend to drive prices down to marginal cost, which means that if the cost of production don't go up, uh, what will happen is that the prices will slowly come down to meet it. Clearly, if there's any change whatsoever in technology, six years of work with the EpiPen means it's lower cost production and higher quality than it used to be uh, so that competitive principles can't possibly explain what's going on. And this is a very familiar situation. Uh, when you had hub-and-spoke uh, economics on railroads, uh, you would find that uh, really complicated short-haul runs would cost more than long-haul runs, and the public has an instinctive revulsion against prices that are disconnected, they think, from actual cost. Uh, the question is, why are you having all of this? Greed is never an answer because no matter what the structure of the market, uh, some firm out there is supposed to try to maximize profits to be met by competition or by regulatory obstacles by others. And I think the head of the EpiPen company said that that's exactly what she was doing. She was basically discharging her fiduciary duties to the shareholders. Uh, so the real question in this issue is why is there not more competition going on in this particular market? And that immediately gets you back to my least favorite agency, which is the FDA. And the situation here is that the FDA has the power to keep products off the market if they are not in some sense regarded as safe and effective. That sounds very noble in the abstract, but if you have a reasonably safe and reasonably effective product and you keep it off the market because of safety and effectiveness reasons, what you do is you now confer a monopoly on those people who remain in the market in question. And so there are one or two other companies that had an EpiPen in development, and these particular companies were told that their applications were not satisfactory, so they pulled off. Then there's the question of whether or not, since these things are now off patent, you can get generic competition in there. Uh, but the EPA, when it's dealing with these compound drugs and devices, which is what the EpiPen turns out to be, tends to be pretty tough on the way in which the generics go. They have to meet independent proof that their product meets the safety standards of the primary product. And what that does is it prolongs the monopoly. Uh, so what you do is you have to ask the question, 
of whether or not think the safety justifications that are proffered by the FDA are strong enough to do this. I think the answer to that question is manifestly no. The FDA thinks that it's yes. If the answer is no, you let in, say, some foreign company which has sold the product elsewhere in Europe. And if it turns out that the FDA says you really got the monopoly, then all of a sudden the case for price fixing of monopoly behaviors becomes much more attractive as you try to drive price down to cost plus a reasonable profit. Richard, one of the responses that this has engendered, and this is not the first time that this has come up in drug pricing debates, is an idea that there should be something that is roughly equivalent to eminent domain here, which is to say that when drug prices get too high, obviously keeping the public healthy is a essentially a, a public good, and the government should be able to go in there and sort of claw back some of the intellectual property rights that these pharmaceutical companies have to these products in order to drive down prices. What's your reaction to that? Well, it's, it's kind of mixed. If, in fact, we really believe that this is an absolute monopoly conferred by government, then rate regulation without compensation becomes a perfectly appropriate response. Uh, that's exactly what was done when the railroads and common carriers had that kind of monopoly power in the United States in the years, say, between 1885 and 1940. We put the Interstate Commerce Commission and it regulated rates and nobody had to pay comp- compensation because you brought it down to a competitive level. Now, the eminent domain situation is, as far as I'm concerned, much worse than the rate regulation solution. If the government takes this stuff, essentially now what it's going to have to do is to say, we're going to be in charge of manufacturing because we own the patent. Well, who are they going to let it out to? If they let it out to some company which doesn't know what it's doing, and then the FDA is going to come along and says, I don't care whether you're a government monopolist or not. Your product is not safe. We're going to keep it off the market. Uh, So I don't think that you solve any production problems in that particular way. What you might want to do is not to condemn the patent. What you would do is condemn the output that are made by these guys. Uh, If you're going to do that, the standard eminent domain law, if you ignore the rate regulation problem, is that you have to condemn it for the fair market value of the product in question. So you add another step and you don't reduce it. The patent thing allows allows you to avoid the serious question about whether or not patent monopolies are created when the FDA has its protective policies. If you answer that question correctly, say that it does, then either you get rate regulation on the one hand, a very second best alternative, or you beg and plead with Congress to say, this is the solution that we want. We don't want the FDA judging safety and effectiveness. We're quite happy if the Germans, the French, or the British do this. So what you should do is allow sight unseen any company which has received approval to sell this particular product overseas in a developed country, they can now sell it in the United States and unless and until you can show that there's something wrong with their product, which would then justify on an after-the-fact basis some intervention. That is clearly the best possible line. When I taught the FDA course this past year, I was stunned at the kind of obstacles that the FDA puts in the way of generic products, whether they be drugs on the one hand um, or devices on the other, let alone compound. And what one has to to do is to recognize this is a wildly protectionist operation and that the extent to which we have a kind of regulatory jingoism in which the regulatory decisions with an identical product made somewhere else are not respected in the United States, we have a peculiar form of chauvinism that could lead to the death of many people. The other point I think that's worth mentioning here, Troy, is the reason why they could raise the price is when you're talking about life-saving medicines, demand is very inelastic. They don't lose a lot of business. And so the mismonopoly is particularly potent, which means that you have to be really careful about how you handle it. 
if you're a non-specialist trying to follow this, it, it can give you a headache. For instance, one of the ways that the company that makes the EpiPen has responded to the controversy is by introducing a generic version of it, of its own product, which, which lists for about half the price, which seems bizarre on its face, but then you can go down a rabbit hole. The New York Times did a long story about this as to why they had to do this because of the pharmacy benefits managers, the insurers, Medicare and, and Medicaid. I don't want to get into the details of that, Richard, but I do want to ask this question of the author of the book, Simple Rules for a Complex World. Oh, thank it, you. It's understandable why healthcare might be a more complex sector than some other ones of the economy. But surely the ideal design of how people get access to prescription drugs or healthcare, it is simpler than the one we have now, isn't it? It should be. What happens is that there is a following basic paradigm. Um, the difficulty starts from the fact that when you're dealing with drugs, there's a huge front-end course to start this thing up and then a relatively small marginal course to make each additional unit. So it may cost you $200 million to develop an EpiPen. That could even be a low figure. And it turns out that it costs you only $50 to make any individual one. If you charge the marginal cost, uh, what happens is you'll never recover your fixed cost, which means that nobody will do it. So therefore, you have to allow something other than marginal cost pricing unless the government subsidizes production, which is madness because they have no idea which projects in advance of their success or failure to subsidize and why. Well, then the question is, you're now selling these things to hundreds of different people under very different programs. There is no unique allocation as to how much of the fixed cost of production gets charged against this group or charged against that group. And so what happens is everybody wants to come in there and say, I'm happy to pay marginal cost in a little bit. You take those other guys out there and make them pay marginal course plus a lot of stuff. And since there's no unique solution to this, you get this political jousting. Now, you mentioned that the government is involved in this. It has Medicare, it has Medicaid and so forth. It makes volume purchases for the VA. You know, Uncle Sam knocks on the door, you start to listen. So they're going to say, well, you've got to lower the price for us. Well, you have still the fixed cost constraint that you have to meet, which means that you're going to raise it for everybody else. In a competitive market, even a competitive market without government regulation, this problem is sufficiently serious that you're going to get differential rates for different customers. You're going to get hidden rebates. You're going to get all sorts of things. What you have to understand is if you're a pharmacy benefit manager and you have to have full forcing that is covering every one of these projects. You're the guy who can't run and hide, so you'll pay the higher price. If you're a particular plan that needs to get one but not two kinds of drugs, you can play one off against the other and get a lower set of prices. So the thing that I would want to say is, yes, I believe in simple rules for a complex world and think in general that regulation is not going to solve this problem. But even in this simple rules world, if you're dealing with a high fixed cost quasi-monopoly product, right, with low variable costs, the pricing systems are going to be extremely complicated, which means that it's very difficult to figure out how you denounce it. This is what happened with the railroads 125 years ago, and it's what's happening with drugs today. The so-called marginal cost controversy, which started originally with monopolies in 
physical space, railroads and so forth, really carries over to this drug market. So there is no truly simple solution. The problem here is when you add regulation on, it's always a cost. But given the fact that the regulators usually don't know what they're doing, generally speaking, it's not going to generate a benefit. So you're probably on average better off letting this entire cycle go than spending a lot of money because you don't have an idea of what it is that you'd like to bring about in the long run. So open up the flu sluice gates, try to get as many of these products in um, through the licensing project. And then it turns out the monopoly rents will start to dissipate and you'll probably get a calmer market even though you'll never get a perfect one. Let's broaden this out a little because this this wider topic of drug pricing keeps coming up in the context of the elections this year. And one note that you often hear on the left, including from the Clinton campaign, is that people overseas, especially in Europe, get their drugs so much cheaper than ours that there's no reason that Americans need to pay a premium for the exact same medication. What's your reaction to that criticism? Well, it's the same problem that we talked about before. There are these high fixed costs. And what the Europeans do is they're monopsony buyers. That is, their government does the buying and they come to these companies and they say, we'll pay you marginal costs and a little bit more, but you can't make us budge. And there's nobody else in this country that you can go to get to. In the United States, where the demand is the highest, generally speaking, even in a completely unregulated economy, more of the fixed costs are going to be gravitating here than anywhere else. And of course, what happens is when the companies have price freedom in this country and they don't have price freedom overseas, you know that the prices are going to be higher in this case. Now, if you try to say, look, we're going to do exactly what the Europeans do and say, we're going to give you a your variable cost plus a little bit of fixed cost, it means that when you sum all of these products across the entire globe, nobody gets anything because you'll never be able to recover those fixed costs and so therefore nobody will want to do it. The other point to remember is even though we pay higher prices in the United States through some but not all programs, one of the advantages that it gives you is you get these drugs first because no matter where these things are developed, why would you want to start your sales campaign in some grudgingly ungenerous European country which says we'll give you a little bit of fixed cost and some of your, and your variable cost when you could get much more in the United States? So what the quid pro quo is you get better access in this country at the price of having to pay more in order to get it. And again, you know, I think that there are a couple of things that could be done to do this. One, in the United States, if you reduce the cost associated with the FDA approval on these various drugs, that will drop the cost. And no matter what the market configuration, it will surely drop the prices a little bit and it will give you greater kinds of choices. And most importantly, for many of these things, dropping the barriers on generic drugs will do it. If you have free entry in a generic market, which you do for a lot of simple molecules, which are easy to produce, the price can go down by 80 or 90% within a day after these things start to hit the market. The EpiPen is a trickier thing to produce because it's a device. And if you get the calibration wrong, you can start killing people. And so there's no question that you want to be a little bit more cautious about their entry into the market, which is why I suggested the compromise position, which is what you do is you take some Something which has been licensed and improved, inspected overseas in a company that you trust and allow them to sell in the American market without having to go through the preliminary hurdles. And if you did this, it would get rid of 25, 30, 50 percent of the problem. Who knows what the number is? But this is not a problem you're going to solve in the sense that you're going to make it look like an ordinary competitive market. It's a market that you can improve, but one that will always have these kinds of anomalies. So the final question that I'll put to you, Richard, it's sort of an old joke amongst conservatives and libertarians, people on the right, that 
government tends to get involved with some part of the private sector, does a lot of damage and then points to the damage and says, look, the government needs to do more, which certainly feels like where American healthcare has been going over the past five years or so, probably before that, but in a more pronounced fashion recently. So with that in mind, do you regard it as inevitable that the more that this sort of Jerry rig system that we have starts to go wobbly. The government will just get its hands deeper into it, or do you still maintain some hope that we could see some more market-friendly reforms in the? Well, I, you know, we have had market-friendly reforms. Certainly, a lot of the deregulation of rates in the airline industry and the motor vehicle industry came from the fact that people understood that competitive equilibria actually outperformed this peculiar market kind of dominance that we start to have. Uh, but essentially, if you actually look at the closest parallel, which is Obama. Care, it gives you a mixed message. Um, I can recall 10 years ago, nine years ago, saying the adverse selection problem, ladies and gentlemen, is going to kill you with this particular program. The government's position was we could tolerate adverse selection because whenever we put adverse selection in, we just add a subsidy in order to counteract it. And so the traditional response on the left is we'll make the market crazy and then we'll add money and subsidize it, which means you're taxing somebody else and creating a distortion elsewhere. So long as you believe that that's the correct response, then you'll never get this thing right. And, you know, people who are supposed to have intelligence like Paul Krugman actually said that completely wrong in my view about the situation with respect to the breakdown in the healthcare exchanges. If one realizes that the reason they break down is you have so many restrictions that they can't operate, then you realize that the first best solution is not subsidizing a crappy system. The first best solution is getting rid of the, the system and going back to more of a voluntary insurance market. Uh, this is an absolutely epic choice. Um, and the difficulty that you have now is the Democrats are candidates are hopeless on this issue and the Republican candidate is largely illiterate about the subject. So it's going to take a bunch of intellectuals to try to put this case. And I could just imagine myself going in front of a large crowd say, the difficulty here, ladies and gentlemen, is we have a high fixed cost, low variable cost situation in which the allocation of joint costs will give you serious market distortion. And look at the response on the part of my audience. I think I could explain it to them with a graph in 10 or 15 minutes, but I'm given 10 or 15 seconds. I think it's going to be hopeless. And there's a long history with public transportation in the United States where they nationalize um, subways, for example, in New York City. Uh, the reason they nationalize them is they drove them into bankruptcy with safety and rate regulation of one kind or another. So the answer is there is always a right way to think about it and a wrong way to think about it. This is America 2016, a dominant left-wing surge, which means that wrong methods will get all too much respect when right methods are also available. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.